Hey there, glad you're here. I'm Becky from abookloversadventures.com and welcome back for another episode of Literary Escapes with, well me, Becky. This episode was originally recorded as an interview in my Literary Escape Society membership book club, where we travel to a different destination each month with our books. I hope you enjoy. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with New York Times and international bestselling author, Reese Bowen. Along with being a bestselling author, Reese has two internationally acclaimed mystery series. The first is Her Royal Spinus. The main character is Georgie, who is a cousin to the king and queen. She is not interested in marrying a foreign prince like she's supposed to. So this series follows her adventures and, well, sometimes her misadventures, as she tries to make it on, make her way in the world on her own. This is a fun and clever series. I really enjoyed it. The other is your Molly Murphy series. I haven't read this one yet. So can you share a little bit about this one with us? Yes, it takes place in New York in 1901, it starts. Oh, how she's fun. An Irish immigrant who has to flee from Ireland after she's accidentally killed the man who's trying to rape her. And he's the, he's the these are not as cozy. Uh, he's the landowner's son, and she feels she will get no justice in Ireland, so she runs as far as she can. She gets a chance to go to New go to America to New York using another woman's name. I'm not going to explain how that happens, but and That's when she gets to Ellis Island, a murder occurs, and the name she is using shows up as one of the prime suspects. Oh, <laughs> So that was the driving force behind Murphy's Law, which was the first book in that seat in that series. And that won four awards, including the Agatha Best Novel. So it got off to a good start. It did get off to a good start. And how many is in that series now? Um, I uh, 17 are out. Wow, that's uh, amazing. I put, on, I put it on hiatus for a bit because I was doing the Royal Spinus and I was also doing one of the big standalones each year. However, last year, my daughter, my oldest daughter came to me and said, I think I would like to um, reprise the uh, Molly Murphy series with you. I think we could do it together very well. And she came up with a brilliant plot for the first one. I was very surprised because I was expecting that I'd have to hold her hand a lot and say, no, at this this point of the book, we need to find out this. But instead of that, she'd say, oh, I, I just, I took the party scene and then I've gone on for three or four scenes after that. And I'd look and I go, oh, these are brilliant. So it's wonderful. (laughs) fell straight into it. So it comes early next year and it's going to be called Wild Irish Rose. That sounds like a wonderful partnership. I look forward to reading that series knowing there are more to come. In the Literary Escape Society book club, we read your standalone historical Above the Bay of Angels. This story takes place in the early 1900s in both Buckingham Palace and Nice, France. I understand the inspiration for this novel started with a conversation with a gentleman in Nice. He was telling you about a building up on a hill and that it had been built for your queen. It was built for your queen. (laughs) And I went, it was built for Queen Elizabeth. And he went, no, 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 it was built for Queen Victoria. A few years ago, yeah. And I had no idea that Queen Victoria had ever stayed in Nice for a long time. So I started looking that up. And I found that during her later years, she'd come every winter and she'd stayed first of all in villas and things, but then some enterprising person had built this hotel for her, specifically for her. And she took over one whole wing because she brought a retinue of a hundred people with her 
And um, I mean, the thing incognito, I, loved, I thought that was funny. <laughs> yeah, the thing I loved most was that she came on a private train with all her bedroom furniture, including a, a giant wardrobe and a huge mirror. And then she brought, you know, all her footmen, her ladies in waiting, her gentlemen, her maids, and her cooks. And I thought, you're coming to France and you bring English and cooks. And you bring your English cooks. <laughs> So I started, and then the funniest thing was that she came in this private train with all this stuff, and then of course this row of carriages going up the hill, and she said, I don't want anybody to know I'm the queen, exactly. you want to call me Lady Balmoral, as if it wasn't a dead giveaway, oh she also had a regiment of pipers walking ahead of her. That is hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> that is a hoot. So I I can't imagine that anybody didn't know who she was. So. No, of course they did. <laughs> That's really funny. And she didn't want any hullabaloo about her, but yet it goes with the territory, I'm guessing. So yeah. I suppose you can understand from the present queen that, you know, when they're on vacation, they don't want all the ceremonial stuff. And like everywhere she went, otherwise there would have to be an official welcome and a speech. Right. And, whereas if she wants to go and bathe in the in the sea which she did sometimes she can just do that without you know without all the ceremony that's so funny how did you know about like the back end of buckingham palace i've been to buckingham palace oh. um, uh, i've been around all the nice parts i've never been in the kitchens but i do you can i i did have a map um okay. you know had a plan of, of where each floor was and where oh, um, okay and where the servants would have slept and i read i read a very good book on um, all of the Queen, on Queen Victoria's staff, and where they would have slept, and okay. who would which floor, and um, who was superior to whom, and who served whom at dinner, and because all those things were very, you know, and they had all these strange yeah. jobs, you know, like the keeper of the boots, and I mean, all these jobs that had, that had gone down through Crazy. yeah, who were people for, you know, so, you know, the interesting thing for anything to do with upper class or royal is that the actual family has no idea what goes on behind the scenes. You know, they sit yeah. there and, and tea miraculously appears. They have no idea what the kitchen looked like, where it was made, who made it, how it got there. Exactly. Whisk, whisk through back corridors and just coming out. So you Oop, Right when you want it. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Huh? So yeah. what has been your favorite setting that you've written about? Oh, well, Nice was obviously one of the ones I've been to Nice many times. It's one of my great relaxing places. The setting is just magnificent when you just look down that coastline and you have all those beautiful mountains tumbling into the sea and the sea's completely blue and you have the white luxury yachts. I mean, it's, it's one of those idyllic settings. The other one that has been another of my favorite settings, I just had a new book out last week called the Venice Sketchbook. Mm -hmm. And obviously that takes place in Venice, which is um, uh, another of my absolute favorite places in the world. I've been to that many times too, uh, including starting in my childhood. Um, actually, when I was a child, my aunt used to go to Venice every year at Easter. Okay. And um, she persuaded my parents to rent a little villa um, just outside Venice, which they did. And then we'd drive in every day and my parents would give us some money, my brother and me, and say, see you at five o'clock. 
<laughs> and we would wander the city and do exactly what we wanted to meet our parents. Can you imagine doing that today? There were no I can't. <laughs> we'd be at the parking garage at five o'clock, which we always were. Um, but we had a wonderful time finding out about um, you know, finding out about the whole city and everything. So I bet you had fun exploring it. Writing a book there was just a wonderful thrill again to be back and just just experiencing everything again. So, so when yeah. you when you write, do you are you in the setting? geographically i mean do you go um, there I, to write or not always i i always have to go there before i start the book yeah i do all my good research there okay. um, at this stage i do a lot of to start with a lot of background reading so um you know i would have read up on queen victoria's loads of biographies of queen victoria biography of her chef books on her kitchens i would have read all of those ahead of time and then i went to nice and i actually was up there on the hill in Simier and, and you know you, you see how long does it take to get up the hill what do you see on the way you know all the things that that she would have done uh, choosing right. a, choosing a villa choosing a beach and um so I, I like to sort of actually trace the roots that are going to be in my books and just get the feel of what do you smell here what do you see here and because um, you know you can't bring a place to life unless you really have been there and you're right you know, if, if you write you can always tell if someone writes about paris and you think you've looked at a guidebook haven't you because <laughs> you know if you're in paris and you're standing on the steps in montmartre and you smell the sort of smell of coffee roasting and there's a bread bakery nearby and there's dog pee and there's someone smoking a french cigarette then you're there right you know, that's, that's what you really need that's funny we um we read around the world in 80 days. And it was funny because the author hadn't been to a lot of the places. So I'm, I'm not sure how he figured out like what was there, you know, how he did his research back in the day. But it's true that when somebody has been there, when the author has been there, you can feel it, especially if they're a good author, you, you experience it with them. And that's, I love that. Yeah, I think back in the day, as you were saying, back in, in the old days, so many people had not traveled mm -hmm. that you could get away with, you could have a train coming into London station and no <laughs> one would ever query it, you know, whereas today I've, I've, I, I'm often asked to blurb books of other writers. I can't tell you how many times I've written to them and say, before this comes out, you need to correct. It wouldn't have come into that station. It would have come into this station, you know, and it matters. Simple things like that. It does matter, yeah. It, it sounds like you put a lot of research into making sure your books are historically accurate. Do you, have you put anything out that has been historically inaccurate, I guess? Uh, the Tuscan Child. Okay. Uh, I had, um, I taught two workshops in Tuscany during two summers, so I knew the area well, and I I, you know, I got the whole feel for my village and everything while I was there. And when the copy editor did it, he said, you will have to make this a month earlier because um, that particular village would have, it was a fictitious little town, okay. but I knew the area it was in. That particular little town would have fallen to the allies the month before. 
Oh. And so I said, well, I can't make it a month earlier. It's all about someone freezing to death over Christmas. You know, I'm not changing it. <laughs> I can't um, change it to November. Yeah. So, so I realized I was going to have to move it further north to, to the, the north of Tuscany. Oh, okay. So I had to choose a new town. So I spent three days on Google Earth, literally saying, OK, if we go up this valley, <laughs> I need to see I need to see a, a vineyard on this side and an olive grove on that side and a hill and a hill town. No, we don't. Let's try. So I did every single valley wow. north of that of that valley, north of Luca. I knew Luca was still being fought over that month. So it had to be a valley just north of Luca. So I literally spent three days till I actually found one that was really true. Wow. OK. You know, if I'd done it. If, they, if they'd left it, I probably would have get would have got some World War II history buff who would have written to me and said, "That's not oh, right." Mistake on this. It actually that village would have fallen about three weeks earlier. So, right. Sometimes you want to go. It's fiction, damn it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You have the right to put what you want in it, right? <laughs> So when you're writing a book, um, how long does it take from like the concept to the proposal to the research all the way through to publication? Well, I usually I've come up with the idea long before I ever write it. Usually, you know, I, sure, I, yeah. I think to myself, I'd love to do a book that was set in in Nice with Queen Victoria, wouldn't that? And, and then, you know, the summer before I'm going to start writing, I'm in Nice and I'm doing all <laughs> background work and I'm doing all the research and so I've got all my good notes and then I start usually those big books I, I write I start in January and I write right through until I've got a first draft which is usually January February month by the beginning of April I've got my first draft okay and then I give it to some people whose idea whose opinions I really value and they read it through and they come back saying I didn't think that worked very well, or this character sounded a bit mean there, or she sounds way too naive here, don't have her do that. So <laughs> I, read, I, I take those all to heart, and then I go through and I do a complete rewrite. And then okay. it goes off to editor in the summer, goes off probably at the beginning of June. Okay. And, and the editor gives her comments and I, I address mm. those. Sometimes they've got little things like, wasn't very clear why she did so-and-so, or later you say this, can we, uh, anyway, then it goes to the copy editor who is the picky one. Right. Who goes through and says, you know, you said uh, dinner yesterday, she mentioned this and now you say that. And, you know, and I'm in the middle of copy edits at the moment. So I, I just wrote to my editor and said, can my next book be called How to Murder a Copy Editor? Because <laughs> um, she was being, she's being incredibly picky over things that really didn't matter <laughs> A character's gone up to her room and they said, well, shouldn't we have the servant show her the way to the room? Like that goes without saying, they're in a house with servants. So anyway, then the copy editor goes through it. And then finally the proofreader goes through and picks out typos and, and words that are just wrong. So if, if, if it starts in June, the book will then come out the next spring sometimes. Okay, so which is where you are right now. Yeah. Yeah, right. And so then are you in the middle of another one yeah. that you've already started in January? And... I, yeah, yeah. I've, okay. I've, I'm doing another World War. I've done several World War II novels, and I think it's still, have, yeah. there's still so many stories left to be told. For sure. There are lots of good stories still, but this one, the new one, I'm still, um, I'm still just finishing up the first draft. It takes place 
that's a young woman from, from London, a lower class Cockney woman, very big difference from me. Most of my heroines have been upper class. Right. Uh, she's a Cockney woman, very limited education. Her little house in London is bombed. She's buried in the rubble, very traumatic. They only just find her. And um, so she's sent out to be evacuated into the countryside. And the place she's evacuated to is right next to one of the big bomber airfields. And every night these giant planes take off for Germany and every morning half of them don't come back. So she is there. I'm not going to say what she did there or what happens there, but um, that's the setup for the story that it's, it's, oh, interesting. it's a place where life and death are very precarious. How do you come up with your characters? Um, usually they come to me and say hello and then there we are. You know, the, the, the heroine I think if you look at my characters, you would see one thing they have in common, a lot of them, is they are outsiders. And so they don't really belong anywhere. And in um, Above the Bay of Angels, you have Bella who really should have been to a nice finishing school and then been presented at court and then made a good marriage. Right. Instead of that, she is sweeping floors. Marion Coles, yeah. She is the sort of person who makes the best of it. It's never once, why me? Um, right. It's what her father did all the time. Her father was, it's not fair. And look what happened to him. He became an alcoholic. So Bella is, I am doing this and I'm going to make the best of it. And then while I actually enjoy this cooking, I think I could be really good at this cooking. Right. And so she's taken what she's been given. She's been given the lemons and she's made the lemonade. So um, and she made it uh, really good. <laughs> Maybe it's even limoncello. So um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, I think a lot of my heroines are like that. They've been thrown into a situation through no fault of their own, and um, they're going to make the best of it. You know, if you go go to the other books, uh, well, of course, the Tuscan Child. You had someone who crash lands, um, and uh, uh, and then a woman who is risking her own life for him every day. And um, none of these people had to do what they did, but they did do it. So, you know, I like writing about the bravery too. And in Farley Field, you have people who are working in difficult and challenging right. situations. So, yeah, um, okay. but the characters, like in this one, I knew I wanted her to be uh, lower class, a Cockney, and the Cockneys are, are traditionally have this great sharp sense of humor. You know, they. Mm -hmm. London is a very mm. packed city of everybody living very close, at least in those days, living very right. close together. And um, there was this whole mm. vocabulary that was to keep the Cockneys from the upper classes so that the upper classes couldn't understand what they were saying. You know, there's all the rhyming slang and all those. Right. So she, I knew she mm. was going to be resilient and I knew she was going to be witty and I knew she wanted more. She was born believing that there should be beautiful things in the world and she doesn't have them so in the book she's given a chance for beautiful things and makes the most but then I only really know them when they start to talk I've done several of my books have been in the first person and the, the moment that person starts to talk then then I really know them they just they just start talking and they don't shut up so I, I just <laughs> follow along for the rest of the book now, are you able to, like, do you have an outline of what the story is going to be, or does it come to you as you go, or some of both? Yeah, um, yeah for the big, the big standalones, I need to know to a certain extent where we're going, because okay. there's a lot of research to be done ahead of time. Um, mm -hmm. The Royal's finest books, I would say, 
I pretty much start and I, I'm like the next one that comes out in October is going to be another Christmas book. Okay. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun if Lady Georgie has to spend Christmas near Sandringham, right next to the Royals? <laughs> what, what could go wrong with that, you know? I start with that and then I give, I give Darcy an awful aunt and I give, um, you know, and I give the Royals and something happening to the Royals. And I know, I know vaguely what's, who might get killed, but there's no outline because I just, things just happen as they go along and sometimes okay. they're, not, they're not planned. But in the big books like this one, I, I did know that obviously she's going to, this will be her life, you know, pre trajectory. She will have to go and be a servant. She right. will cook by luck. I mean, this is the huge, you know, turning point in her life is that she takes what she's been offered with tremendous risk and she runs with it. Yeah. Um, and then Queen Victoria, and then we were going to go to Nice. And then I also wanted to bring in the scandal concerning the, the Indian uh, uh, Abdul Karim. And, uh -huh. I, and I also thought it'd be fun, you know, I write murder mysteries. We can't really have a book unless someone really is going unless to die. a murder, right. <laughs> so uh, I wanted her to be the one that it would, suspicion would fall upon her and to show her resilience and how she gets out of it. So. You know, so I knew those things were probably going to happen. And what I do is I have a big whiteboard and I write up columns about, you know, this will happen and this will happen. And, you know, in the Venice sketchbook, this would be Juliet's story. This will be Caroline's story. This okay. is what happened to Contessa. And then I can look from one to the other. Nice. Okay. Do your characters reflect your personality at all? I think they must do. Um, <laughs> it's funny because my, you know, my most popular heroine is Lady Georgiana, who is related to the royal family. Right. And, um, I get books, I get um, letters about her all the time. And one person wrote to me and said, oh, I've just seen your photo. And until then, I thought you were Lady Georgie's, like, Georgie's age. <laughs> and so, you know, that's fun. It must mean that I'm challenging, I'm channeling her very well. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think I think I am there's several things. I think I'm very feisty. I have a great sense of justice. I want to make things right for other people. I think they've always been part of my nature. I also think that I have had a life of an outsider. You know, I have lived in America most of my life. I moved here when I was 24. So, you know, I'm seeing things through the eyes of an outsider, which makes you a really good observer. And if you look at most of my heroines, Holly mm -hmm. Murphy comes to New York. Lady Georgie, her, her father is a royal duke, but her mother is lower class and she has a lower class grandfather. So she's sort of poised between two worlds. Yeah. And I think this always makes you a really good, candidate to be a sleuth because you're an outsider you observe and your heroines tend to be optimistic and courageous and adventurous um judging from where you've gone in your life and yeah. i know but i have to say most of my molly murphy for example and lady georgie they're much braver than me i wouldn't sort of chase chase after someone um or, or hide out in a cellar i wouldn't do any of those things you know i like making <laughs> I like making them do it. You know, they say exactly. <laughs> if you love your if you love your heroes, you make them suffer. And so I think, oh yes, you're going to be doing that. It's going to be really nasty. <laughs> That's funny. Do your characters ever make? Do they ever show up in a different novel? Um, Other than your series, or yet? I mean, it'd be kind of fun to do so. I think, which um, uh, I thought it not might... all set in the same time frame. So no, well, um. Then, um Molly Murphy's 1901, Lady Georgie's mid-30s. Mm -hmm. um, 
I've got lots of books in World War Two. I've got, you know, Queen Victoria in this one. I've got one in World War One. I. I thought it might be fun one day to have Molly Murphy's son, who we now see as a baby, um, to have him go to the future and be sent to sent to England and meet Lady Georgie. That'd be kind of Ooh, fun. That would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. That, how interesting. The folks who have read all of your books would completely yeah. enjoy that for sure. Yeah. So do you have a favorite character that you've created? Or is that oh, like picking a favorite that, child? It's like saying, yeah, which of your children do you like best? <laughs> I'm very fond of um, in, in Farley Field. I don't know how many of you have read In Farley Field. Um, it's uh, it's a, like a spy novel and set in World War II. And there are, it's an aristocratic family and there are four sisters. I'm very fond of the youngest sister, Phoebe, because she's um, she's 12, I think she's 12. Okay. Wow. She's very, she's very resourceful. She's um, very brave. She she takes way too many risks, as we see at the end of the book. But but she's you know, she's someone I could write another book about when she gets a bit older, I think, because I think she's got all the all the makings of being Interesting. a good sleuth. That's that would be a fun one. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite book that you've written? That's really hard to say. You know, it's it's always the one I'm not writing right now. <laughs> I, I was very fond of the Tuscan Child because I thought it worked very well with the two timelines. Okay. This was a challenge for me. I'd never done a book with two timelines before, but I do like I like reading them. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I wrote Hugo's story, and then I wrote um, uh, Sophia's story. Oh, no, I mean, so not Sophia's, Hugo's story, and then um, Joanna's story, his daughter. Okay. And then I put all of the chapters with Hugo's story all the way down our hall at home. We have a very long hall. And then I stood there with Joanna's chapters going, when do we need to know this? And right. And I slotted them in physically. And that was the only way I could think of doing it, to get the great feel of the whole picture. How and interesting, luckily, yeah. Luckily, there was no draft down that hall. <laughs> might have been disaster but that would have been who was the only way I could think of doing it and it really it worked quite well well that's pretty clever to come up with that one <laughs> I like that I'm very um visual like that as well so I can appreciate that one yeah I think the other thing the other reason that, that I'm very fond of that book I have to say is because it has sold um three quarters of a million copies which is um that's, yeah. that's pretty amazing yeah. <laughs> that's pretty amazing so what was your first book well I've had a whole lifetime of writing things my first published work was a play for the BBC um, okay. when I first came to California I wrote children's books uh, I did many young adult books okay. and I switched to um, I switched to mysteries because I suddenly realized that was what I read. So why wasn't I writing them? Yeah. I've now done, I've now done 45, I believe, in the historical mystery genre. Okay. And, uh, the very first mystery book that I wrote was the Constable Evans series. He's a Welsh police constable, contemporary. Okay. And, and that was called Evans Above. And, and um, is that under Reese Bowen? Yeah, that, yeah, all okay, because I haven't seen those. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're still available in um, ebook form. I think they went out okay. a print as paper book, paper, but that was back in 1997 that came out. Okay. So and how a, many are in that series? There are 10 in that series. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a pleasure to chat with you, to hear your stories. Um, I've enjoyed it so much and we enjoyed reading your book this month. So thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Thanks for joining me today on the Literary Escapes podcast. This episode was a clip of the interview I did in my membership book club, The Literary Escape Society. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to join the full interviews live, come check out the Literary Escape Society. We're a community of travelers who love books, or maybe book lovers who love to travel. Either way, if you need an escape, a literary escape, come join us as we read our way around the world together, one book at a time. Check out the show notes to learn more about the Literary Escape Society. And we'll see you next time on the next episode.